At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Once you join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, we've been in a study of the Gospel of Mark, just a few chapters, and one of the things about Mark's Gospel is that he is confronting us with a question. Every time you open up to any of the stories in Mark's Gospel, any of Jesus' teachings or the miracles that he performed, you are confronted with a question that you have to answer in your heart, I have to answer in my heart, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, if you were with us last week, you'll know two things. Number one, that what a person thinks of when they're asked that question, who is Jesus, reveals the most important thing about that person. There's a lot of important things about us, where we were born and and raised, our our history, our, our geography, our occupation. But the most important thing about you and about me is how we answer the question, who is Jesus? Now, last week, we were reading chapter 3, and what was uh, astounding to me, and maybe even surprising to you, was the variety of ways people responded to Jesus. You would think that because he is Lord, because he performed miracles that no one else performed, the apex of which was his death, burial, and resurrection, you would think because he taught like nobody else thought, taught that uh, there'd be only one response to who Jesus was, and that would be to worship him, to praise him, to bow the knee to him, to surrender our hearts to him. But that has never been the case. The reality is there is always variety in how people respond to Jesus. It's interesting, uh, those of you who have multiple children will be able to relate to this example. I was looking at my kids this week and I sat back and thought, uh, how is it that a kid, two kids, multiple kids can eat at the same table, be raised by the same parents, and turn out totally different. Anybody ever notice that phenomenon? Uh, I was reading an article about it in, in the Washington Post about this, and uh, it was really interesting, written by this woman, Elizabeth Lang, and it was simply entitled, Why Siblings Are Different, The Scientific Evidence. Well, it wasn't too scientific at the end of it all. I was more confused than I was at the beginning. Of it, She kind of blamed it on genetics, covered the story of a mom who was a former teacher, three kids. One was athletic, one was very academic, one was artistic. They all were very different. And it caused me to think, not only are why my kids so different, but why is a variety of responses in humanity and the human heart to Jesus? But the Bible doesn't blame it on genetics. The Bible says it's a condition of the heart. When we were last in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that there were three groups. There were the religious leaders of Jesus' day who called him a liar. There were those who called him a lunatic, and it's hard to believe, but that was his own family for a season who called him mad. And then there were those who called him Lord. 
What do you call him today? Well, I pray that you would call him Lord, but make no mistake about it, that will be tested. And so Jesus wanting to encourage his disciples because uh, no doubt at this point they're questioning like, why is there not more response? We expected there to be more success. What's going on here? Jesus wanting to answer their questions gives them a story. And he explains why that is. Before we dive into the story of Mark chapter 4, though, I want to say this. That while so much of the heart of my preaching and my desire, my deep prayer, is for those of you who haven't believed yet to believe, I also want to encourage those of you who have already put your trust in Jesus to know that you have not believed in vain. We need to be reminded of that, that it is a good thing to have trusted in the Lord. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. How many believe that with all of your heart? But Jesus answering the unspoken question of their heart in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, gives them a story. It starts like this. I'll read uh, just a few of the first few verses. It says, again... He began to teach beside the sea. This is referring to the Sea of Galilee. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was, and I'm sorry, and he was teaching uh, them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now he's about to give them a story about a sower, a farmer, and his seed as it scatters. How many have heard this story before? By the show of hands. Many of you have heard this story before. It is one of the foundational stories of Jesus, what he would call a parable. Now, a parable, we get the word parallel from this. In the Greek, it means to literally a saying that comes alongside. It is a story that comes alongside a spiritual truth to illustrate that spiritual truth so that you can get a visual of it. Now, what was the spiritual truth that he was trying to drive home? He had just talked to them about the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin, rejection of the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's illustrating this now and how our hearts can either be softened or hardened to the message of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus. Verses 10 through 13 give us the purpose of the story and then verses 14 through 19 gives us the interpretation of the story. Let's read the purpose for just a moment. Verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, these stories that he had been teaching him. Matthew 13, just a parenthetical statement, Matthew 13 is a complement to Mark 4, and you can see the other parables that he was teaching them in. Verse number 11, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parable, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Somehow this is so foundational that it's the key to unlocking all the rest. 
that there's a deep truth that's here. And we'll see it clearly as he shares the meaning of this with his disciples. But there's something here that he says. It's not that he does not want people to come to faith in him. No, he does. But it's simply him saying to them that um, my teachings expose and reveal the state of a person's heart. It exposes and reveals whether or not hearing they really hear and seeing they really perceive if they really are open to the truth and thereby be converted versus those who do not. Jesus always makes his truth available and accessible to the heart that is hungry to know his truth, but to the heart that rejects it, everything remains a mystery. So let's talk about this story. It starts off by telling us in verse number one, there was a, a, a very large crowd. Now in chapter three, verses seven and eight in particular, we saw that there was a great crowd, but this crowd is even growing. It is swelling. Now he says it is very large, very great. But Jesus isn't enamored by numbers. Neither should we be enamored by numbers. He never encourages us just to follow the crowd. He knew that in a large crowd, not everyone was a follower, not everyone was a seeker, not everyone was a believer, that there was a variety of characters in this, uh, this large group, and so it is in our gathering today. But he wanted them to be able to locate the condition of their heart. And so he says to them in verse number three, this word that it's hard to uh, be able to fully translate with the emphatic passion that Jesus said it with, it is simply, in my translation, the word, listen. Listen. Have you ever said that to someone? Listen. In the Greek, it's a kuo. In the Hebrew, it's shema. It is what, what uh, Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's as if Jesus is grabbing all of his listeners by the face and saying, listen to me. Because what I'm about to tell you is important. So the story goes on to say that the sower sows the word. Now the sower is never defined for us. And I think that that is uh, dual meaning. Clearly in the context of this story, the sower is Jesus. Now the seed is defined for us though. The seed is defined later in this, uh, in this chapter as the word of God. Jesus is the one dispensing his word and I want you to see how he dispenses it. He dispenses it across all types of soils. He is indiscriminate. He is liberal. He is generous. He dispenses his word far and wide. And he wants us to do that as well. He wants us to know his word, but he wants us to share the truth of who he is and what he's commanded. And you leave the results to God. We don't have to be stingy with our faith. As a matter of fact, if you didn't know this, you should know that Christianity is an evangelistic faith. It's a faith that literally commands and commissions us to not keep the truth of God to ourselves, but to share with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, the nations, our neighborhood. And so just know that the example that is set for us here that we should follow is just as Jesus just uh, liberally sowed the seed 
across various soils, we should sow the word of God as often and as frequently as we can. Four different types of soils here will be introduced to the first one in verse number four. Verse number four reads as this. It says, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. It's simply called the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Verse number 15 gives us the interpretation of this particular um, uh, soil. It says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, I want you to picture this is what it was like to live in Jesus' day, that a farmer would have seed and he would uh, cast that seed out across the ground indiscriminately, a little bit indiscriminately, and, uh, and part of the ground was what we would call a path. Uh, and just like if you've ever gone hiking or if you ever walked through the woods, there are certain paths that happen because many travelers have traversed across a particular section of ground or terrain. But what happens after a while is that becomes really, really hard ground. And imagine trying to throw seed on that. That seed never takes root. It just literally bounces off the ground. What he wants us to know is that for some of us, that describes the condition of our hearts. Does this describe the condition of your heart? Examine your own heart. When the word of God comes to you, do you receive it or do you reject it upon hearing? It's really interesting because one of the things that Jesus was very clear on is that not everybody was going to receive him. And what he didn't try to do is sugarcoat that. He thought that it was best that you know the condition of your heart. And I think it's right. I think we need to know the condition of our heart. And if our hearts are so hard that we can't receive the truth of God's word when it's presented to us, as we read it, as we hear it, Sometimes as it comes in comfort and other times as it comes as rebuke. How are you at receiving the word of God? How many can honestly admit that it's a struggle for you? You, you have suspicions, you have doubts. In his book, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, how many have ever heard that book before? Maybe C.S. Lewis at his creative uh, apex and finest, it's a book in which uh, he is writing creatively about a senior demon writing letters to a junior demon as they write back and forth to each other about how to keep a young man from trusting in Christ. And one of the things that he says to him is, sow seeds of cynicism so that he will doubt the very word of God. And those doubts, that seed of cynicism, is often about the people in the church. And no doubt, Satan is on his own cynicism campaign, sowing seeds of doubt in your heart. But I just want to say this. As important as it is for the messenger to try his or her best to live in line with the message, how many know that the message is true in spite of the fallenness of the messenger? 
None of us as messengers are ever going to be able to live up to the perfection of the message, but make no mistake about it, though I am flawed and fallen, how many know that the message is inerrant, inspired, infallible, eternal, and true? The word of God is always true. How many know that truth is truth no matter who delivers it? Some of us have too high of a preference on who tells us the truth to determine whether or not we'll listen to it. I've often talked about my grandmother from this stage, sweet woman who passed away about five years ago, who up until her dying day had me and my six, nine brother sit on her lap every time we walked into her apartment. And I would tell you that we obliged grandma because you don't say no to granny. But I often have thought to myself, in particular when the word of God has come to me as a rebuke, I've often thought to myself, I wish this could have come through granny because she would have said it in a much sweeter way. I mean, after all, she loved us, right? She would have sat us down and said, baby, now there's something I need to tell you. You've messed up. You've blown it. Now do you want a piece of pie? I mean, that's just her way, you know? But every rebuke doesn't come that way. As a matter of fact, God uses who he will, when he wills, how he wills. And sometimes he's going to use people that you would not have chosen to deliver the word of God. But I pray that we will attune our hearts to say, Lord, whoever is the messenger, help me to receive the message. Amen? I want to say something about this soil. As we work through these various types of soils, there's a big message here that I want you to get, and that is hearts can be changed. Maybe as you listen to this, you realize that your heart is in one condition. Maybe it is hard, or as we're going to see in a moment, rocky or thorny. It can be changed. It can be changed into good soil. So I would encourage you, to pray, if you sense the Lord correcting, the Spirit rebuking you today, as we read through this, pray, Lord, change my heart. How many thank God that we can be changed? How many praise God for that truth? But I also want to say something else, and this is a word to parents and to grandparents, that because we know that Satan is sowing seeds of cynicism into the hearts of all of humanity, Get your kids while their hearts are still soft and pliable. Sow the word of God into their lives. Hear me, moms and dads. Sow the word of God into their lives while their hearts are still soft and pliable. I have kids that range from teenagers to three years old. And the reality is, is that the older they get, the more cynicism sets in. It's the reality of living in a fallen world. So we better get them while their hearts are still soft and pliable. 
I remember dedicating my youngest daughter here when uh, she was first born, and we we're given this jar, and in this jar there are marbles, each marble representing a week of their lives until they're 18 and they move out. And boy, how those marbles move quickly as you take one out each week. They have so little time in your house. And now I got a daughter who's in her senior year of high school getting ready to go off on her own. And I think to myself, the time is not walking by, it is running by, it is in a full sprint. And I'm so grateful that we sold the word of God in her heart while she was still young. Now what she does with that is ultimately up to her, but may it not be found on us that we did not take advantage of the opportunity to sow the seed of the word of God into their heart as much and as often as we could so that they would not be found as hard-hearted as this one is. The second type of soil we see in verses five and six. In verse number five, we see other sea fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. Verse number six, and when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. What type of soil is this? We see the explanation, the interpretation in verses 16 and 17. Go with me there. And it says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Verse number 17, and they had no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fell away. I want you to notice the difference between the first two soils. The first two soils, there's a huge difference, and that is around the decision to receive the word of God. Stick with me for a moment. Uh, Many of you have noticed that one of the things that I want to be intentional about is after the gospel is preached, I want to call people to respond. And praise God, people are responding. Last week, I think the number is we had about 15 people make decisions for Christ and give their life to Jesus, putting their faith and their trust in him. How many praise God for that truth? I pray that this week there'll be even more. But let me make sure that it's clear that there's a difference between decisions and discipleship. That it takes both to bear much fruit for Jesus. Yes, we have to make a decision to follow him, those who condemn decisions. It makes no sense to me why you would. But a decision alone does not produce maturity. You need decisions and discipleship. And so what we have in the first type of soil is no decision at all. They just reject the word of God. Their heart is so hard that they can't even receive it. They don't really even hear it. But this one readily receives it with joy. So after the sermon is over, the call is made to put your faith in Jesus, and they raise their hand, yes, I will. But then when hard times come, and make no mistake about it, hard times are going to come. As my mother would often say, either you are in a trial, you are just coming out of a trial, or you're getting ready to go into a trial. How many know that that's true? That life in the fallen world is full of hardships. I hope I'm not breaking news today. 
Life is full of challenges and loss. Now, in particular, he is talking about the persecution and tribulation that comes along for our faith. And if we're not careful, we'll be shallow soil. We'll be the type of soil that can't endure much persecution. One of the reasons why I'm so committed to uh, taking trips throughout the year to go and visit brothers and sisters from around the world is I'm often impressed by what they're willing to endure for their faith. And it challenges me that we need to be willing, I need to be willing to endure for my faith. Now, how many want to endure much for your faith? How many want to trust Jesus all the more when things get difficult? I want to be that type of Christian. But that's going to require both decision and deep discipleship. So when you hear us inviting you to join a life group or to get into a Bible study, it is our way of saying deepen your roots because the wind is going to come. The storm is going to come. There's going to be the unexpected there's going to be times when life does not go as you planned, not go as you wanted. You're going to get the uninvited. You're going to get the unwanted, and it will encroach upon your life. Persecutions, hardships, tribulations, trials. Until Jesus comes, this is what it means to live in a fallen world. And it doesn't mean that he's not faithful because he has promised that even in your valley, he is with you. And praise God, you can trust in him. You can. I'm living proof of his grace. But we need to prepare our hearts and minds for that moment. It was probably about 15 years ago in my previous church. I'll never forget, we were opening a new building for ministry. It used to be a warehouse, and we had uh, purchased it, and we had renovated it. It was the first time that I had really come to believe that not only can people be born again, buildings can be born again as well. We had converted this warehouse into a ministry center, and we were so proud of it. And about 5,000 square feet wasn't big, but uh, we had put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it. And uh, it was the Eve before it was supposed to open, and a number of folks were with me. We were putting the final touches on it, and as we were leaving that night, I'll never forget one of the volunteers, one of the leaders in our ministry, her name, uh, she used to be a news anchor in this area. Her name was Crystal Knight, and Crystal walked out of the building, and as she was crossing the street, she was hit by a hit-and-run driver. We didn't think she was going to make it. I remember going out running as I heard screams and holding her as the police and the EMS came. And I heard the police off in the distance saying they didn't think that she was going to make it. But make it, she did. She survived that. But it wasn't easy. She had about 13 surgeries. And I remember going to visit her in the hospital after one of her surgeries. And uh, you ever have one of those moments where God flips the tables on you? You go to encourage somebody and they end end up encouraging you. And so I walk in to encourage Crystal. The next thing I know, she's peppering me with the promises of God. She has so much joy. She's encouraging my heart. And I just was overwhelmed by the moment that I said, Crystal, how is it that you're able to maintain so much joy in spite of being in a wheelchair and surgeries and broken bones and all that you're going through. And she said, it's because I've purposed in my heart that I want to glorify God in suffering. Glorify God in suffering. Now, much to my shame, up until that point, friends, I had not had that as a goal. 
It was not my prayer that I would be at my best when things were at their worst. Yes, I wanted to be faithful to God. If you would have asked me, I would have said that. But to glorify God in suffering had not been a specific prayer of mine, but it has been since. That God, I want to honor you best when things in life is at its worst. And so I commend that prayer to you. I encourage you, like Crystal, that you would pray, Lord, help me not to be a fair-weather Christian that can only glorify you when my stomach is full or my bank account is full or my gas tank is full, but help me to be a servant that can glorify you when life feels like it's on empty, when betrayal comes, when disappointment comes, when heartache comes. Help me to remind myself then, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Third type of soil is what we'll simply call distracted soil. Look at verse number seven with me, if you will. It says, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Verses 18 and 19 give us the interpretation. Verse number 18, Jesus says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Again, this is a group that when called to make a decision to follow Jesus, they say, yes, I'll follow him. They make that decision. But because there's only a little bit of discipleship, their hearts are so easily drawn away, so easily distracted. I think this is the type of soil that most of us fall under Because we live in such an affluent land where there's so many entertainment options. There's so many ways to bring pleasure to ourselves. And the prevailing message of our hour is be happy. After all, God wants you to be happy no matter how much damage your pursuit of happiness does to your family, to your own soul, to your testimony. Just pursue happiness is what our enemy tells us. And so we chase after things. We chase after desires, or what the scriptures call the deceitfulness of riches. And friends, my best advice to you and to my own heart is know your limits. Know your limits. It's an amazing thing that even in an affluent land, I have never met the person, no matter how much money they have, that feels like, that's enough. Have you met that person? Haven't met that person. You ask just about anybody, how much is enough? Their response will be, either directly or indirectly, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And that's where Satan gets us, is to just a little bit more. Just a little bit more pleasure. Just a little bit more money. Just a little bit more entertainment. And the next thing you know, you are getting off course. And it won't be long that you will find there is so much distance between your soul and your Savior. And so you better know your limits. You better set pretty early on in life that I'm only going to go so far. I don't care how lucrative the deal is. If it calls me to have to compromise my covenant commitments, I'm not going to pursue it. I don't care how great the opportunity is. If it causes me to have to break my bond with Jesus, 
I'm going to say no. Where are your limits? And I would say to the young adults that are in here that before you get off to college or before you launch out on your own, know your limits because what Satan will continue to do is to entice you to just step just a little bit beyond your limits, to do some things that may not feel like you're going to a far country, but it will get you further and further away from the Lord. I hope, my prayer, my heart for you and me is that we will make a commitment. Lord, I'm not going to accept anything in my life that will cause me to have to walk away from you. Amen? Remember this, that everything and everyone in your life is either pulling you towards Christ or away from Christ. So do yourself the favor of doing the evaluation. Evaluate your friends. Evaluate your opportunities and ask yourself, is this pulling me towards Christ or away from Christ? There's nothing wrong with riches in their proper place. Nothing wrong with pleasure in its proper place. But when those things take preeminence above Christ, you have sold your soul to the highest bidder. And you've become shallow soil where the word is choked out and you're not able to bear fruit for God. And all of this doesn't mean much if all we have to live for is today. But if like me, you believe that one day you're gonna have to stand before him and answer the question, what did you do with the grace that I gave you? I don't wanna stand before him empty-handed. I want to be found faithful and fruitful. Which leads to the final soil, verses eight and nine. And it says here, and other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, what's the interpretation of this? Verse number 20 is the interpretation. Uh, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Um, the interpretation here is clear. This is the soil that makes decision to accept the word, follow Christ, and has deep discipleship. And friends, that's why I want to invite you to get serious about your discipleship so that you can weather the storms, so that you won't give in to the temptation to let pleasure become your God, so that your heart won't be hard. Deepen your commitment to God so that when he returns, you might hear, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want you to stand with me as we close today, and I wanna, I wanna give an invitation. And this, different than most weeks, as we close in worship, um, the invitation, yes, is always to respond to the gospel. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, I urge you to do so today because only in Christ are you going to find the peace, the grace, the forgiveness, and the salvation that your heart so longs for. But I also want to call all of us to deep discipleship to say, yeah, I'm going to join a group or take a class or go on that mission trip so that my roots in Jesus can be deep and I can bear much fruit so that when he returns, I'm not showing up empty-handed, but I'm presenting all of who I am 
and all of who I've reached to him before his throne. As we get ready to uh, worship him, let's pray. And if today you want to give your life to Jesus after this service is over, come to the altar so that we might pray with you. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We pray that our hearts will be good ground. Help us to honor you in all things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said a big amen. Come on and give God praise. Thank you for joining us as we